You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So good morning once again to all of you and Happy New Year once again to all of you. My name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you happen to be new with us this morning, you're watching or listening for the first time, or maybe you've just joined us recently, welcome on behalf of our entire church family. You are a great addition um, to our crew here. So if you haven't been with us, then um, you wouldn't know that we have been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew together. And once again, um, we returned to where we were before we jumped back into our Advent series and looked at the earlier chapters of Matthew. So now we're back in Matthew chapter 8. And we're just looking at four small verses, but this is an incredibly powerful story. And it's a story that will be familiar to many of you, and it takes place on the Sea of Galilee. And as we always try to do, We want to enter this story together, and so we're going to do just that. I have some pictures that I want to show you um, from when I got to go to Israel in 2016 um, in celebration of my 18-year odyssey of finishing my master's degree. This incredibly generous church family surprised my wife Jamie and me with a trip to Israel, and I can tell you that that trip has forever changed how I read my Bible. And it is especially meaningful for this story here this morning because I was there. I was on the Sea of Galilee. And these pictures that we're going to show you now are pictures that I took right off of my phone. And you can see from that first picture there, the Sea of Galilee is, is big. It is the largest um, lake, the largest freshwater lake, rather, in the Middle East. And it is big. That's why it's called the Sea of Galilee. And you can, you can see some different shots here that it's expansive, that it's enormous, but what you may not appreciate is how it's situated and what makes it unique. You see, the Sea of Galilee is 636 feet below sea level. So on one side of it, you have this desert air and these these mountains that rise up to a couple thousand feet. And then on the other side of the sea, you have this this warm, moist air, sometimes colder though air, that comes in from the Mediterranean. And these air currents collide right over the Sea of Galilee. And so what it means is that you can have a beautiful day like we've seen from these these pictures that I took on my phone. And very, very quickly, that day can change into a stormy day. And sometimes they get some epic storms on the Sea of Galilee. They're sudden, they're vicious, and oftentimes people are caught out in the middle of the sea in boats when this happens. And that's exactly what happens in this story that we'll look at today. And while we were in that area and looking around the, the Sea of Galilee, we were privileged to be able to see a boat that was found Um, In 1986, it's affectionately called the Jesus Boat, and it dates all the way back to the first century when this story that we're about to look at took place. So this gives us an idea as we now enter this story of how big this boat was that the disciples and Jesus were in. It was not a very big boat. And so this storm is going to come upon them, and we're going to see how Jesus and the disciples respond to this storm. And it is going to be so instructive for us. And I think such a timely word for us as we head into a new year. So let me read this passage to you and, uh, and then we'll take a look at it together. So Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake 
so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So let's just dive right into these verses here in this story. So it tells us very deliberately that the disciples followed Jesus into this boat and eventually into this storm. And it makes me wonder, did they really know what they were getting into when they chose to follow Jesus? Well, we're about to find out. And as we do, remember that we're picking up on a reality, on a story that we looked at with Gary Brashears last week. And that is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to be all in. It is a whole life commitment. And sometimes it means that we will follow him into a storm. And we'll talk more about that as we get deeper into this passage. So did the disciples know what they were getting into? I don't know. Probably not. Do we know what we're getting into when we choose to follow Jesus? I don't know. Probably not. So knowing that there's this possibility that following Jesus could lead us into a storm, is it worth it? You ever thought about that? Ever felt like that? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Well, this passage is going to make a case for why it is. So once again, we go back to our story here. The disciples follow Jesus and up comes this storm. Now, my friends, this is not just any storm. This is written very deliberately for us to appreciate what a massive storm this was. When it says this was a furious storm, that is the word in this original language that we get mega from in our English language. This was a mega storm storm. And once again, with the collision of the the cool, moist air of the Mediterranean and the dry air of the high desert, with those colliding right over the Sea of Galilee, a tranquil day can become an incredibly dangerous day real quickly. And there have been reports and there have been um, records of waves up over 10 feet um, being stirred up by these storms that hit the Sea of Galilee. So I don't know if you've ever been out in the open sea in the middle of a storm, but there is nothing more terrifying, and nothing that makes you feel more helpless and endangered. Many years ago, my first salmon fishing trip, I was invited by my brother-in-law to go with some of him and his friends to cross the Columbia Bar and to go out and fish the buoy line out there for salmon. And I'd never been on a trip like this, so I thought, hey, this is going to be great. And it was a cloudy, overcast day, but it wasn't a stormy day, at least when we started out there. So we crossed the bar and we're out fishing our way down progressively, the buoy line getting further and further out into the open sea. And then a storm does begin to take shape and it does begin to roll up on us. And interestingly, the captain was the first one to get seasick. And then the other guy who was with us and then my brother-in-law and out of the four of us, I was the only one who didn't get seasick. Not sure why, but everybody else was. And at this point we thought, nah, maybe we'll start to head in because the waves were getting progressively bigger and bigger. Now we weren't in a very big boat. It was kind of a hybrid ski fishing boat. And so it was beginning to get a little scary. As the waves were getting bigger, 
the guy had the engine firewalled and we were headed in, but we weren't going real fast. And the waves progressively got bigger as we began to cross the bar. And it began to get scary at that point. But obviously we made it. I'm here to tell the tale. We made it across the bar, but there was another boat that didn't. I watched on the news the next day that there was a boat that capsized about half an hour after we came in and they lost two of the people before the Coast Guard could get there. Two people drowned. There's nothing more terrifying, more scary that makes you feel more out of control than to be out in the open sea in a little boat in a storm. And that's exactly where the disciples and Jesus were. And we have to appreciate and remember that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were lifelong fishermen. They had fished the Sea of Galilee their entire lives. Certainly they had been in storms. And for them to be terrified and afraid, this really did have to be a mega storm. And so they wake the Lord up and they tell him, we're going to drown. Here the boat is sinking and Jesus is sleeping. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And, and his response is, is really interesting. Yeah, it's more than interesting. He, he rebukes them. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. There's so much here in this little verse here. For starters, he rebukes them and then he rebukes the winds and the waves. So let's start with them. What exactly were they reasonably supposed to do in the middle of this mega storm as the boat is sinking? Jesus' response is, is kind of a head scratcher here. They weren't supposed to wake him up? Was he maybe a little cranky because they interrupted his nap? I know I can get like that. If I drop into a nap and I get woken up suddenly, I'm not the nicest person to be around. So was Jesus being a little irritable here? Was he having a bad day? Had they frustrated him previously and now he was letting them have it? And I think the answer to all those questions is no, that's, that's not what's, what's going on here. So the question still stands though. Why does he rebuke them? Why does he declare them to be little faiths, which isn't exactly a compliment, right? And what we have to remember is that there are other accounts of this story. And again, when we preach and teach God's word, we're always trying to equip you to read and understand and appreciate and learn God's word for yourself. And so one of the amazing things about what we know about Jesus is the, the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will take these same stories and since they're writing to different audiences, they will capture different details and offer different perspectives on the same story. And so we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Mark. This story is also repeated in Luke, but we'll jump over to the, the Gospel of Mark and see what Mark says because it colors in some lines for us and helps us understand more why Jesus is responding the way he is. So let's see what it says in Mark 4.38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now that is significant for us to get our hands around. Number one, they accuse Jesus of not caring. Number two, they declare that they're drowning. So did Jesus care? Of course he did. Were they drowning? No, they actually weren't. They were legitimately afraid, but they weren't drowning. And so now we begin to get a, a better feel for what's, 
what's going on here? And, and we wrestled with this as a preaching team, especially when we preached through the Gospel of Mark and first really wrestled with this story together some years ago. What were they supposed to do? Well, yes, they were supposed to wake him up. We really do believe that was a reasonable response, but not reasonable for them to declare that God didn't care and that they were going to drown. You ever felt like God doesn't care about what's happening to you? I know I have. I have gone through storms in my life where it's felt like God has walked off the scene. Or he's there, but he doesn't really care because he doesn't seem to be doing anything. And yet we have to be so careful and appreciative of what we can learn from this story. Even if it doesn't feel like it, God does care. In fact, there's, there's something significant that they're declaring here. Yes, they're, they're legitimately afraid, but what Jesus is saying is you have what you need. Why aren't you using your faith? Why aren't you using your trust? And I think the problem here isn't the fact that they're afraid. They're legitimately afraid. The problem is they're not acting on their faith. They're not using what they have. And actually, the way this sentence is written in this passage for us is emphasizing their lack of faith, not their fear. And so, they must have felt like they were drowning. But to accuse God of not caring wasn't, wasn't okay. So, let's do some business with this whole idea of faith. Because what you will hear in some circles, and unfortunately what is taught sometimes, is that if you just have enough faith, God will do whatever you ask him to do. And if God doesn't do what you ask him to do, then it's a you problem. You don't have enough faith. The problem with that is that it reduces God to a vending machine. If you just put enough faith coins in, then you're going to get what you want out. That is not how faith works. And that's not how a relationship with the living God works. So if you don't get what you ask for, either God's not a good God or you don't have enough faith and it's a you problem. Well, again, let's look, think and look critically at this story again. How much faith did the, did the disciples have? Well, Jesus said, you don't have very much faith. He called them little faiths, but they had enough faith to ask for help. And I think there's something wise there for us to remember. If you have enough faith to ask God for help, you're on the right track. Then you probably have enough faith. They, they knew enough to ask for Jesus' help. And, you know, another interesting dynamic about faith is that it, it's not something that you necessarily can store up in a jar and then shake out when you need it. I mean, yes, there's absolutely a dimension of faith that is built on God's prior faithfulness. The realities, the promises, the things that we know to be true about God. Absolutely, that's a foundation of our faith. But there is a dimension of faith where you have to act in the moment. Where you will have to exercise your faith. You will have to act out of your faith in maybe ways you haven't before. You can't just necessarily store it up and then expect to just, just draw on that. It's, it's a combination of drawing on what you know to be true about God, but also acting on what you know to be true about God. I mean, to the disciples' credit, 
they woke him up. They, they did ask for help. So I think there's something significant there. And man, as we look at this story, it sure is a significant story. It says they were amazed. They were amazed at what Jesus was able to do. And when it says that the, the sea became completely calm, as we saw in that earlier verse, that's, again, that word mega lurking in that original language. The sea was a mega storm, and then it became mega calm, which is miraculous in and of itself because when, when a storm stirs up the waves, even when the storm subsides, the waves continue for some time after until they eventually subside. This is written in such a way that it became immediately still. Not only did the storm stop and disperse, but the waves all of a sudden became smooth as glass. That water was, was completely stilled. And of course, the disciples are amazed. It's not just a miracle, but it's a God-sized miracle. Because it was understood in ancient culture and in ancient religions that the only one who could still and calm and control the seas and the storm of the seas was a God or little g gods. That was a divine thing to do because only the divine could control the uncontrollable. And the sea was representative of that power that could not be controlled. And so for Jesus to do this wasn't just an amazing miracle. It was a statement of who he really was. And whenever Jesus performs these miracles, he is demonstrating and proving his identity. And right here, once again, he's proving his identity that he is God. And whenever Jesus performed a miracle, it wasn't just for the sake of the miracle. It was to prove his identity. And it was to show what the kingdom should be like, what the kingdom of God is, is all about. But what makes Jesus distinctive from every other major world religious leader or religious founder is he is the only one who claimed to be God. And that's why you have to do business with Jesus Christ at some point in your spiritual journey. You have to figure out who he truly was. He was not just a prophet. He wasn't an avatar. He wasn't a wise man. He wasn't a sage. He wasn't a life coach. He claimed to be God. And over and over again in these stories, he will prove to us that he really is. Only God can control the seas. Only God can perform a miracle. And that's exactly what he does in this passage, and very deliberately so. And it says the disciples were afraid, but then they were amazed. Next week, in the miracle he'll, he'll perform, the people will once again be amazed, but then they will reject him out of fear. And we'll get to that next week. But we see another important dynamic in this passage, and it's this, that Jesus can be trusted. Why should you follow him? Even, it mean, even if it means you follow him into a storm, he can be trusted. He can always be trusted. So let's take this for a test drive applicationally. If you were with us last week, as we explored the passage prior to this one, Gary rightfully helped us see that following Jesus is a one-time decision and it is an ongoing decision. And I know just from the numbers of you who are watching or who will listen to this in the future, that there are some of you who are wrestling with if you truly should trust and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're wrestling with that one-time decision because at the end of the day, you're afraid. 
You're afraid of what it might mean for your life. You're afraid of what it truly might mean if you choose to follow Jesus. And my friends, I so get that. I've been there. When I chose to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior as a high school student, I had to do battle with fear. And that fear was that if I followed Jesus, he'd like make me a pastor or he'd make me into a missionary or or something like that. Now, for the record, I love being a pastor and I love being one of your pastors. There's nothing I'd rather do with my life. But those fears weren't really about being a pastor or even being a missionary. And by the way, when you choose to follow Jesus, you automatically become a missionary because he wants you. And we should tell the story of what he's done for us and how he's transformed us. But that aside, the issue really wasn't being a pastor or a missionary. The fear was, what would my parents think? What would my friends think? My friends who were with me at that camp, who I knew were not interested in following Jesus at all, what in the world would they think about me? There was real fear there. And to follow Jesus, to make that defining moment decision where you cross over from death to life and you choose to trust him as your Lord and Savior by receiving him into your life, chances are you'll have to do business with some fear there. Fear of what? Other people will think, fear of what it might mean for your life. Can you trust him? Well, that's at the heart of where we're struggling and wrestling with this morning. But then there's this ongoing reality of continually trusting yourself to him because there is a reality that this passage teaches us. Yes, we live in a broken world where the storms of life are going to come our way, but sometimes following Jesus means he will lead you into a storm. Following him will mean you will go into a storm in order to trust and obey him. Wow. Is it worth it when that happens? Is it really worth it to trust him? And the answer is yes. It absolutely is. And what we have to appreciate from this passage is once again, the issue wasn't that the disciples were afraid. The issue was with their lack of faith. Somehow we have this thinking, and sometimes, unfortunately, it's explicitly taught that if you're being faithful, if you're trusting in God, you don't feel fear. My friends, that is not what we see in Scripture, and I don't think that's reality at all. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is what you do in the face of fear. And we see this over and over again in the men and women of Scripture, but we also see it in the life of Jesus himself. When Jesus was about to go to his death through the crucifixion that he knew was coming, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we fast forward further into the Gospel of Matthew, look at what it says here. Jesus is praying to the Father, and, he, and he, at first, though, he's, he's speaking to disciples and says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then, going a little further, he falls on his face to the ground and prays to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Was Jesus afraid there? Are you serious? What does it say in verse 38? His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's afraid. He's overwhelmed. He's scared. He's sad. He's grief-stricken. 
But what does he do? He tells the father how he feels. He asks for what he wants. And then he asks what the father wants and commits himself to doing that. And I think that is a model for us. You know, one of the amazing things about God's word that I love about our God and that I love about his word is his word never tells us to pretend that things are better than they are. Ever. But it does tell us over and over again to bring our hearts to God, to tell him what we're feeling, even when it's not pretty, pretty even when it's difficult, even when it's, when it's ugly. But to tell him, what we're feeling, to ask for what we want, but then to be willing to submit to what he wants, to follow him on his terms and not ours. And that's difficult because here's the reality. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. We live in a broken world. And we're going to have trouble. Now in our heart of hearts, all of us probably hope that that trouble happens to someone else and somehow passes by us. But the reality is, we're broken people living in a broken world that God thankfully is in the process of redeeming and restoring and renewing to what he always intended it to be. But in the meantime, trouble is going to come our way. And when it comes our way, how will we respond? Will we say, you don't care because this is happening to me? Because what we're really saying with that is, this is happening to me because God, you don't really care. And that's absolutely not true. You see, as Jesus followers, we should be the most realistic, hopeful people in the entire world. We know that this world is broken. We know that we're going to have trouble. But what does the rest of verse 33 say in John 16, 33? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. My friends, we face trouble with hope. And sometimes following Jesus will lead us into trouble. It will lead us into storms. And it's totally worth it because we can trust him and we can trust him because he gives us his presence his power, and his promises. And we see all those at play in this story, even when it doesn't feel like it. It didn't feel like it to the disciples, but Jesus, he was right there with him. He exercised his power. And do you really think he was going to let them drown? Of course not. We have his presence. We have access to his power through his Holy Spirit living inside of us. And yes, we have his promises. My friends, sometimes faith isn't about what you feel. It's about what you know and who you know. And I think that's one of the main points of this passage for you and me. You know, I've been camping out in my own time with the Lord in Hebrews chapter 13. It's the final chapter of that amazing book on faith. And I just, I love it because it's loaded with so many practical one and two, three verse applications. And you know, there's a verse that says, that actually reaches back into the Old Testament and says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Man, that's a great word for us to hang on to now. 
And then there's another verse that says Jesus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My friends, those are, those are promises. Promises that we build our faith in and on and promises that we remember when we go into a storm. And my friends, it's promises like this and it's spiritual realities like this that have sustained Jesus followers for thousands of years in this ancient future faith that we share with them. We have to remember his promises. So back to that trip in 2016 to the Sea of Galilee. One of the things I was asked to do and able to do was um, when we went out on this boat, out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, I was asked to lead a devotion on this very passage that we're in here this morning. And I can't tell you how meaningful it was to be on the Sea of Galilee, to smell the air, to see the sights, to hear the sounds, and to be reading and reflecting on this story with a group of other Jesus followers like you see on the boat there. And to be struck with the realization this could have been the very place where this story took place, this very spot of water. At the very least, it was the very sea where all this took place. And I felt so close to the Lord then. I mean, it's just hard to put into words. But my friends, as we looked out on Christmas Eve, you don't have to follow a star in order to see the work of God. And you don't have to go to the Middle East and to the Holy Land in order to experience the presence of God. As wonderful and as incredible as that is, I can honestly tell you, I feel as close to God now, here, this morning, as I did on that boat in the Sea of Galilee. Because you'll find this God in the ordinary rhythms of your life. One of the things that we love to do as a family is at the end of the year, we did this last week prior to Christmas, is we compile a global thank you list of the entire year. And it always starts out a little slow as we're trying to think through the flow of the year. You know, what do we have to be thankful for? But then we just begin to capture it. And my friends, every single year we fill up and actually exceed a single-spaced page of paper of all the things we're grateful for that God has done. And they're just things that happen in the ordinary rhythms of life, things that we would overlook, things that we would forget about, things that we wouldn't be tuned into if we weren't watching for deliberately the work of God. And it was such a rich night. We did that. We had a game night together. My, my new son-in-law and daughter were there, and we just we laughed. In fact, I laughed so hard at, at some things that I cried. It's been a while since I've laughed that hard. But it was just rich and good, and we felt so close to each other and so close to our God. It was a game night, just an ordinary thing but a rich thing. And one of the reasons why I look forward to when we celebrate communion together is it's a, it's a magnificent, tangible, practical reminder of all the realities we've talked about here this morning, that, that we have a God who gives us his presence, gives us his power, gives us his promises, even when we're in the middle of a storm, even when it feels like he's not there, even when it feels like he's not doing anything, even when it feels like we can't trust him. This reminds us that we can. 
So if you have these elements nearby, go ahead and grab them. If you need to go scramble and get them, now is the good time to do that. And as we're getting ready to remember what he's done for us, I want to take us deeper into Matthew once again to where Jesus institutes what we're about to do together here. And it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And so this is the body of Jesus Christ. Let's remember his presence, his power, and his promises together. Then it goes on to say on that last night before Jesus was to go to his death, burial, and then his resurrection, that he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's remember him together. As we prepare to respond in music worship now and as I invite the worship team to come, I would like to thank the Lord for what he has done for us and what communion reminds us. So would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are faithful, that you are worthy of our trust because you always do what you say you will do. And Lord, we we confess, we call it what it is, that there are times that it feels like you don't care. There are times that we are in the middle of a storm and the waves are getting bigger and it feels like you are asleep and that you don't care. But Lord, we thank you that you do care. We thank you that we can trust you because you give us your presence. You give us your power through your Holy Spirit and you reaffirm your promises time and time again because you are the God who stands by what you say and what you do. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. As we sing this song, you would give us the faith to trust you regardless of our circumstances, to keep our eyes focused on you, to cry out to you for help, and to cling to you as our foundation and our security and our hope. Lord, thank you for all these things. We pray this in your name. Amen. And he is the rock of our salvation, and we can trust him. And the Spirit seems to be telling me that there's someone, at least someone, probably more, who is right in that place of trying to decide, can they face their fears with whatever those are and truly trust and follow the Lord. Well, for starters, when the Lord asks us to follow him, the timing is always now. When he asks us to follow, it's now. When when Jesus asked the disciples to get into the boat, it was now, get into the boat. And like you, I had to do business with my fears. What would? my parents think of me? What would my friends think of me? What would I think of me? What does it mean? I had all these fears. But the thing with your fears is somehow they begin to lose some of their power when you name them, when you call them what they are. 
when you do business with the what ifs, because that's where fear lurks. So what is it that's keeping you from following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? He's asking you once again to trust him and to follow him. So name those fears and then respond by choosing to follow him. It is the most important decision you will ever make in your life and it is a decision you will not regret. My life has so much joy and purpose and hope because of who I know. And the same can be true for you. And there's not a special sentence or special words you have to say. You just have to want him in your life. And you can literally say, Jesus, I want to trust you. I want to follow you. And he will come through the power of his Holy Spirit into your life. Now, for the rest of you who do know the Lord, how is he asking you to follow him now, today? And some of you are in a storm. And you're wondering, is it really worth it? Is he really there? Is it worth it to follow him where he's leading me? And for those of you who aren't in a storm, the chances are good that someday you will be and you'll be in the same place. Asking yourself, do I trust him? Do I follow him? And when I'm wrestling with those very decisions, those very storms in my life, I always try to go back to the word of God Because faith, once again, isn't necessarily about how you feel. It's about what you know, and especially it's about who you know. And the God I know gives me promises like this, like out of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 41.10, where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And I will strengthen you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's presence, God's power, God's promise. So how will you follow him? Let me pray his blessing and his empowerment over you to do just that. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together to seek you together, to experience you together, to be reminded that even in the storms of life, it is totally worth it to follow you You are God. You are the only true God. You are worthy of our full trust. And you give us your presence, your power, your promises. Would we remember that? Would we act on that? Would we live that out? And Lord, as a church family, we especially pray for the Summerfield family, for the Phillips family, with the losses that they have now endured and the storms that they're in, that you would be their strength and their hope. And Lord, as we now go into the rest of our day, would we choose to follow you by faith, trusting you as our Lord and Savior. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So by faith and trust, go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.